On the Record with Gavin Riley. Brought to you by PwC on News Talk. Now, it's been a very interesting week in the sports world, not least because of last night's victory by Man City in the Champions League, of course, but also because of the developments around uh, the merger of the three major golf tours, the PGA Tour and the DP World Tour, formerly the European Tour, effectively merging with Live Golf, which is owned by the Saudi Arabian Public Investment Fund, effectively meaning that all of professional golf is now going to be privatised under the control of the Saudi Arabian government. I've been speaking to Porik Reedy, who is the uh, head of content 89up. He's also uh, a freelance contributor to publications including The Guardian, The Observer and The Irish Times. He coined the phrase sports washing. And I started by asking him, was this an unprecedented development in the world of sport? This is huge, and this is, this is a step up from um, any kind of sports washing we've seen before, uh, sports efforts we've seen before. In the past, we've seen you know, people trying to you know, such as with the Qatari World Cup, the European Olympic Games in Azerbaijan, um, the various Grand Prix bids by Bahrain, Saudi Arabia, etc. You know, we've seen people, you know, countries and states and state investment funds try to make inroads into sports. Um, notably, most notably, obviously last night, you know, Manchester City winning the Champions League, which oh. was a long-term aim for for the UAE, um, but this is totally different. This is this is essentially buying an entire global professional sport. So I don't think we've seen, we've seen anything like this before. I do think we are looking at seeing more of this. Uh, as a United fan, I was trying to be magnanimous and not go straight for the Manchester City <laughs> question. I, I, I will come back to that in just a minute. But I suppose the the one thing which is striking about the the approach that's been taken in golf is that it's easy to see that being replicated in other sports where there's only one professional tour right now. So, for example you might hypothesize that they could do the same in tennis. They could, uh, you know, try to bid for a breakaway stable of tennis players to form their own breakaway side tour and then eventually weaken the ATP so much that they could effectively merge and take over that as well. Is there now a template uh, that the PIF could use for any other sort of sport? I think there is. Tennis, obviously, is, is the, the closest parallel to, to golf in that it's, you know, based on individuals and a tour and so on. That's certainly doable. And it's, you know, it's certainly in the in the kind of prestige portfolio of sports. The one that, that, that kind of struck me also as, as, I guess, vulnerable, I guess, would be, um, you know, um, rugby union, in fact, um, I think, which has already been, you know, we've seen the CVC by, you know, the massive um, fund buying out a large amount of, of basically the professional rugby union game. And if you look certainly here in, the, in, in England um, and probably across the world, in Australia, New Zealand, Ireland almost being the exception. It is a sport that is very financially vulnerable, but comes with great prestige. Mm. Uh, You mentioned uh, Manchester City winning uh, the Champions League last night. Uh, Some would argue, uh, maybe this sounds like it's splitting hairs, but I think it's an important distinction for some. Uh, They would say that... uh, Manchester City is not owned by the United Arab Emirates or by the family that runs Dubai, that it's owned in a private capacity, albeit by somebody who is very close to the ruling regime. Is that a fair distinction? And if so, does it matter anyway? I think it's, it's to be honest, to me, it's, it's, it's bookkeeping. I mean, we we saw, you know, obviously, Sheikh Mansour is the, the personal, um, personal owner of Manchester City, but we saw last night. In Istanbul, at the Champions League, it just happened that um, Sheikh Mohammed bin Zayed, the overall rule of the UAE, just happened to be in Istanbul that week for a diplomatic visit and was sitting next to to his brother, who is the owner of Manchester City. Um, so, technically, I mean, technically, likewise, you know, golf is not owned by Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia is owned; it's owned by the Saudi Public Investment Fund, which is a yeah. Te- technically supposed to be a distinct body, but I think really, um, you know, ultimately we know that the, these you know, 
particularly in the, in the, in the countries of the Gulf. Mm. Decisions are taken on a very top-down basis, uh, and nothing would happen. You know, Sheikh Mansour is not you know, free to make decisions without Manchester City without ultimately the entire ruling ruling system supporting that. Right. Uh, so if you have a situation where a team which is effectively owned then, as you would argue, by a state uh, can win the Champions League and one of the other spots uh, in uh, for the Champions League in England is going to be taken up by Newcastle, owned by the Saudis, there's the prospect of Manchester United being sold in the coming weeks to, uh, again, notionally private Qatari citizens, but effectively the state itself. Three of the four English teams in the Champions League would be owned by Middle Eastern petrostates. What does that say then to everyone else? Does it mean that you almost have to embrace being owned by a petrostate simply to compete. I think this this has to be the concern. You know, you look at the, the English game is obviously particularly tempting because of its, its its global spread. But also, you look at Paris Saint Germain and other teams who are you know who are the vehicles for you know propaganda both internal and external for these countries. Um, and it's you know for us you know fans outside you know for fans inside Saudi Arabia and the Emirates it it, it makes them feel that they you know, it's it's a good internal sell for them to just to, to say that you know look at the, the wonderful teams that we're involved with for the rest of us outside yes it, it raises serious questions I think for us uh, you know as fans you know to, to as and supporters and people who watch football say well you know is this the way that you win major trophies? by just, you know, by having an entire state's purse behind you. And is that something we want, we want we're, ha- we're happy about? Is this something that we can deal with? Now, we saw last year, at the start of last year, you know, there was a lot of controversy around around Newcastle United, for example, mm-hmm. you know, being taken out, obviously being taken over by the Saudis. By the end of the year, everyone's praising the, the Newcastle manager for the brilliant job he's done. And we've, we, we see how very quickly these things get normalized very, very quickly. And that's, I think, something we ought to be vigilant of, that this doesn't become the norm and beyond the norm, not it's yeah. something that the fans actually demand. You mentioned the internal uh, selling point there. What, what is the value to countries like Saudi Arabia of sports washing at a domestic scale? Is this just about projection onto the world or is there some internal benefit as well? The Saudis have a particular issue in that they have a very young, educated population, um, and that it always spells trouble for um, a, any kind of authoritarian regime. You know, they have you know young people who are well travelled, well educated. They obviously have the internet; they know what the outside world is like. So they've invested you know a huge amount in trying to bring. Yeah, you know, yeah. You know, what is simply um, in old in old terms, bread and circuses to the people they want to. They want big events. They want prestige. They want to. Sh- they want their people essentially to be entertained and to feel that you know that that their country and their regime is top of the world. So you've seen things like Ronaldo and more recently Karim Benzema going to play in the Saudi league, which you know frankly is not a league that you know yeah. the form, you know some of the best players in the world should be in um you've seen them take up the boxing obviously with Anthony Joshua fighting there recently you've seen uh, Grand Prix obviously you will probably inevitably now see golf tournaments um you see increasingly um music festivals um in Saudi um, and, and is it yeah. all as straightforward or as transparent as basically just trying to keep the locals entertained so as to stifle I any think dissent that, uh, Largely, it is about keeping keeping people happy. Yes, there is there is an element of that. Yeah, there is also a projection of power externally happening, obviously, and certainly there also you know for for the Gulf states in particular, there is the fact that they need to start thinking post oil ultimately. So they, they you know the, the Saudi um, public investment fund is not just about sports. They've also invested massively in the video games industry, in Uber, in 
you know, all these kind of you know, big international prestige, cruise ships, no big thing. So they've invested in all these big international prestige um, industries, which they hope will see them through the, trans- the world, the eventual global transition away so, from so oil. So when you get to a post-oil world, that there'll be just incredible soft power because of the amount of stuff that they've got, their, their tentacles Precisely. in. Precisely. Okay. Exactly. Um, how long ago was it that you happened to coin the word sports washing? And did you ever think that it would just become the known shorthand for this kind of practice? <laughs> Um, that was back in 2015, and uh, when we were working with um, with human rights activists in Azerbaijan, um, and, and the Azerbaijanis were almost world leaders on this kind of thing. They they were in there with um, on the the Formula One earlier than anyone else. Um, they hosted um, they hosted um, Champions League matches and so on. But they also then um, hosted something that was um, called the European Olympic Games. Mm. Um, which um, I remember that one, Pat Hickey. Be, yes. It was his brainchild. Yes, yes. quite. Pat Hickey. Pat Hickey was a massive driving force behind that. It was originally supposed to be held in, in Belarus, actually, and subsequently was held in Belarus. But we were working with, um, with Azerbaijani activists around that time, and they wanted to draw attention. They didn't want to boycott. They didn't, weren't calling for boycott, but they wanted to draw attention to how the government was trying to project itself as a modern European country um, with, you know, hosting big international tournaments, having big pop stars like Lady Gaga playing at the opening ceremony and all that, mm. while at the same time locking up journalists, locking up activists, stifling any kind of dissent, any opposition parties, anything like that. So we, t- we came up with the term sports washing to look at how specifically how sport was being used to project an, a, a modern uh, kind of progressive image. That was Pork Reedy, the editorial director of 89Up, a regular sports freelance contributor and the person who coined the phrase sports washing, uh, speaking to me before we came on air this morning about developments in golf and beyond. On the record with Gavin Riley, Sunday morning at 11. Brought to you by PwC. Great minds think unalike. Different skill sets, diverse opinions, it all adds up to the new equation. On News Talk.